Church, we have been uh, talking about how do we exist in such a polarized, divisive uh, world that we find ourselves in, where it seems like everyone's either really suspicious or really angry or really emotional, really upset. Uh, what does it mean to be the people of Jesus? What does it mean to be the church in such an environment? And we've tried to suggest that the answer is that love never fails. That if we are true to the core command of Jesus to love God, and out of that love for God, uh, part of which is obedience, don't miss me, uh, to then love other people, that we can't, in essence, go wrong if we abide by that command, to love God and to love others. Love never fails. And to launch off, we started by giving ourselves an identity statement because we believe at Hope that behavior comes not by trying to change things, but by embracing who we are according to God and His Word. And so we said, we do not build towers. We are temples. We're moving temples. Temple is on the move because of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's who we are. The places uh, in this world where heaven and earth intersect, where, where the resurrection of Jesus pulls the abundant life of the future into the now. Places where people can be close to the presence of God because the Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is with us and in fact in us corporately as a church and then also individually as believers. And so we've tried to ask the question then, though, how, then okay, if that's who we are, then how do we live that way? How do we be agents of love as moving temples? And we said last week that it starts internally, right? So we don't build or construct stuff externally. We have to have this dynamic internal connection with God Himself, this idea of knowing God. Remember, not not knowing things about God, important, but that's not what we're talking about. Not knowing how to live the right way, good stuff, but that's not what we're talking about. We're, We're actually knowing God personally. Something that the Bible talks an awful lot about. This is God's desire. That we would know Him deeply. And from our experience of knowing Him, we're changed because God is love. So if we know God, then we know love. And love is changing us, and therefore we love others because God first loved us. And then we learned that if we're loving others, we're actually joining in God's transformation of our own heart. Helping to, as uh, John writes to his audience, uh, bring this love, this transformation to its fullness, perfection, completeness. So that's the primary thing that we have to engage ourselves in. This is where you give yourself to. But then on the basis of that, these are the things uh, over these next couple of weeks that ought to define how you live, how we live in this world. What are basic actions we take in order to try to love people. And today I want to suggest that we have to engage with people. We can't be on the sidelines. We have to be in the game. And we have to be in meaningful relationships and engaged with the people around us. And to do that, we're going to look at a super famous story from the Bible. A story that I've been sort of referencing all along through this series. A story that I reference an awful lot because it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the story of Zacchaeus and Jesus. You might be familiar with this. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Luke chapter 19. If you do not, the words will be right up on the screen for you, so fear not. This is what Luke writes. 
He says, Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Word of God. We see in Jesus' actions in this very famous story from the Bible what it means to allow love to engage with people around us. Now, there are a couple of things to be said here, and we'll kind of move through them point by point, uh, hopefully in a way that kind of helps you grab onto the story here. But don't miss the big point of the story that Zacchaeus would have been super hard to love. And Jesus went for it anyway. And here's how Jesus goes about it. The first thing that we see from Jesus is that love is proximate. Think about this story with me for a minute. It's all about closing distance, isn't it? Zacchaeus is a guy that seems to live in and around this city of Jericho. This is kind of his home turf, at least it seems that way. And Jesus is coming near, right? We know that Jesus spends most of his earthly life up in the north, up in, in uh, Capernaum and the towns around there. But now Jesus is days away from the crucifixion, and he's coming towards Jerusalem. He's a couple days away from entering into Jerusalem uh, in what we celebrate on Palm Sunday as the triumphal entry of Jesus as king. Uh, there seems to be an entourage coming with Jesus, right? This is a royal procession of sorts. Jesus has come close to Zacchaeus. This is important. But Zacchaeus also wants to get a peek at Jesus, doesn't he? So Zacchaeus has uh, heard the buzz about Jesus. He's heard that maybe there's a place in this kingdom Jesus is talking about, even for guys like him. And the buzz might have started way back when Jesus called Matthew. Remember Matthew, also named Levi? One of Jesus' 12 disciples who himself was a tax collector. You might remember this story from earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5. This is what it says. So after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, this is Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. This is a bold truth, right? Because he left the tax booth with all the tax money. That would have meant not just loss for him, but probably loss for his bosses, the Roman ruling people who were 
collecting the taxes. It goes on. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Incredible. So that the response of Matthew to the call of Jesus on his life is not just to personally embrace it, but to throw a huge party and let all of his friends know exactly what was happening in his life. Perhaps it was here that news started to get out in the tax-collecting community that there was a guy who was offering a kingdom even for people like them. Somewhere along the way, Zacchaeus hears of this Jesus guy. And he hears that he's coming near to him. Now Zacchaeus is uh, a height challenged, right? He's short. We don't know how short he is, the same way we don't know how tall Goliath was. We know that they're diametrically opposed, right, in terms of scriptural narratives. But Zacchaeus is so interested in seeing if the buzz he has heard about Jesus might be true that he climbs a tree and sits in it. Because he wants to see. Is this Jesus all he's cooked up to be? Is this kingdom he's offering really as radical as it seems it might be? Of course, we've read the story already. We know that Zacchaeus is in for a big surprise, right? Because even though Jesus closes the distance from Capernaum to Jericho, and Zacchaeus closes the distance from, say, the sidewalk, I know they didn't have sidewalks, but you get it. The sidewalk to the top of a tree. Jesus is not okay with simply being observed from a distance. Jesus gets proximate. He gets close. He comes right over to him. Now, we've tried to, I've tried to set the scene for you, right? There's, it's, it's, it's a parade. Is that a fair way to say it? It's a royal procession. There's a big to-do. It's a huge crowd coming. Jesus is seen as an important person by this time. And so everyone from the town is out and about. Zacchaeus is up in the tree. Uh, You ever ever been uh, in a scenario where you were close to a celebrity? right? You ever been close to someone who's super famous? Uh, And it's kind of a weird feeling, right? We had a dinner with with good friends a couple nights ago uh, down at the promenade. And of course, if anyone's a golf fan, God bless you. Uh, there's there's the, the senior PGA Open is in town this week. Uh, and uh, we sat outside of this restaurant, uh, partly so that we might be able to see some, some famous golfers. Uh, and our friend, he was spotting them left and right. And I just believed him, because I have no idea who these people are and if they're true. But he was super excited to see people like Davis Love III. You don't know who that is either, right? So help Help me feel good. Steve Stricker, all these different people. He's pointing them out. There they are. There they are. Right? But none of them paused their procession and walked over to the table to address us personally. Do you get the picture of what's happening here with Jesus and Zacchaeus? Right? Zacchaeus just wanted to get a glimpse, to get an idea, to feel the ethos a little bit, to taste the aura. And Jesus is like, no, no, there's more for you than that. And he comes right up to him and engages him in a conversation. This is fascinating. 
We read right over these things because we've heard these stories, many of us, since we were kids in the church. But this should blow your mind. This should be utterly stunning that this would happen. Because here's the truth of the matter. In that crowd were far better contestants to be helpful to Jesus in his so-called agenda, right? Jesus chooses proximity with the one who's looking for him, but is quite other than him. There's a couple of things for us to think about as Christians then. If we are, as Christians, quite literally, little Christs, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for how we're supposed to live in the world around us? That's crowded and full and busy and all kinds of things going on. How do we live the way of Jesus around us? And I would suggest to you that in the same way as Jesus, we have to get proximate with people. If it wasn't okay with Jesus for people to form opinions from treetops in the distance about who he was, then it should not be okay with us for people to form opinions about Jesus or Christianity from a distance. And here's what you need to know, something you already know well. That's exactly what the world is doing. They're forming opinions from headlines and stories and, and, and bad ones and good ones and all kinds of things. And no one's actually proximate to them, telling them or, or living the way of Jesus in front of them. And they're left to process these things in the way they see them, understand them, perceive them. And Jesus, quite frankly, wasn't okay with that. He wasn't condemning those things, but he wanted to take every opportunity he had to get proximate. Here's what I think, church. Maybe this is too far of a, of a step, but I think it's fair. I think more people than we believe are actually interested or curious about Jesus. Because he is quite a curious fellow, isn't he? The things that he did, the things that he says, the countercultural ways that he lived. But most of the world has formed an opinion about Christianity from the treetops. And it's not who Jesus actually is. It's layered with politics and legalism and, and heavy handed religiosity and power grabs. It's layered with their own personal hurt and experience and questions that they're struggling to answer. And for most of us, we've said, well, gosh, I hope they figure it out. Or even worse, who cares? And Jesus instead says, hey, that guy's on the treetop. Seems like he's interested. Maybe the first step would be, I go get proximate with him. And here's the truth, church. For Jesus to get proximate with people in our world today necessitates that the church and or Christians get proximate with people. We are the temple today. We are moving. That is how Jesus gets close to people. And so I remind you, 
of your spheres of influence. The places where you work, where you live, where you eat, where you play, where your kids engage, the parks that you frequent, all the things that make up your life. To say, yes, you have chosen many of them. Yes, you have have earned degrees to get those jobs, but none of them are out of the providential placement of God. He has you there on purpose because He desires a temple in that location. An opportunity for people to not simply make guesses from the treetops, but get proximate to Jesus. Because you're there. That this is part of who we are, and therefore it necessitates our engagement. And here's here's what you need to know, and I think most of you know this. That when we get proximate with people, it begins to change us, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden, our eyes see and our ears hear different things than we thought about people because, oh, by the way, we too were making assumptions from treetops about who they are and what they're up to and why they do the things they do. But as we get close to them and engage conversations, suddenly our heart begins to creak open just a little bit. And we begin to care. I spent a couple of days uh, at my my parents' house this week, and my sister was there and her family, and we had a good time together. And one of the things that we were reminiscing about was this little guy named Jaman. My sister used to work at a hospital um, for kids who were, let's just say, in a bad situation. Um, and my sister is a person who's filled with mercy and compassion, uh, and she would go above and beyond to invest in the lives of these kids. So much so, there was this one uh, young guy named Jaman, uh, maybe he was nine or ten years old, and she would bring him to some of our family functions. And by nature, because of who I am, and I've been vulnerable with you before, I wanted to keep Jaman at a distance from me because I knew if I began to understand the plight of his life, that it would consume me with emotions for him. And listen, this is not fair, but it's true. And honestly, it was just easier for me if I knew very little about him. Therefore, my heart wouldn't be burdened for him. But Carla kept bringing him around. And our connection to him grew in hearing his story. And I remember the day my mom told the story when we were with her this week again, when Carla turned to my dad and said, hey, dad, so-and-so. And And Jaman said to her, dad, what's that word mean? He had no concept of the word dad. And to many people, he was just a kid who couldn't behave and so many other things. And I think, I tell that story to be vulnerable with you because I think many of us resist proximity with the people around us because we know that it will open our heart to them. And we feel like either we don't want that or we don't have space for it. Now think with me for just a minute about our Savior and our Lord. Days away from His betrayal, crucifixion, and death who makes space for a guy like Zacchaeus. Listen, you have the space that you have. 
You have the time and the schedule that you have. You cannot be proximate with everyone. But you also cannot be proximate with no one. It's not what it means to be a Christian. And I'm not just talking about proximate with people who are like you, who enjoy all the things that you enjoy, and who see the world the way you see it. I'm talking about people who are looking for Jesus. Jesus says engaging love is proximate. This is true. But then what's fascinating to me about this story is Jesus doesn't just get close to him, right? In order to give him a bunch of facts that he better believe. Sometimes this is how we process our world. Like, okay, I get close to them and now I've got to indoctrinate. Jesus actually doesn't do any of that, or at least he's not recorded for us. Actually, Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus is fascinating to me. Well, think about it for just a second. Jesus shows us that love is hospitable, right? That love is engaging in hospitality. Zacchaeus would have been, at least as best I can conceive, perhaps the person deserving the least amount of hospitality from an observant Jewish person of the day. He was a bad guy. Let's just put it how it is. He was a criminal, and he was an enemy. And yet Jesus engages him in hospitality. Many of you know the reality of what it meant to be a tax collector in the days of Jesus, but bear with me for just a second. To be a tax collector in the days of Jesus did not mean that you were the elected official whose responsibility it was to collect the exact amount of property tax, right? That's what we have in our local boroughs and townships and districts. That's not what we're talking about here. To be a tax collector in that day meant to be someone who had decided to align themselves with the occupying power of Rome over against their brothers and sisters of Israel. And to have engaged in a secret backdoor handshake agreement that said, Here's how much you must deliver to Rome, but you go ahead and charge whatever you want, and you keep the excess. And so these people were literally robbing their brothers and sisters. That's why Luke pauses to say he was two things. Remember, he was a chief tax collector. That meant he was higher up on the pyramid scheme. So he was collecting not just what he collected, but from the people underneath him. There was pyramid schemes even in ancient Rome. Yes, they did exist. But he also says, and he was wealthy. Now, he doesn't say that just to say, oh, this was a wealthy guy. No, he was telling him he was wealthy by means of doing this. Luke's trying to set the stage to say, whoa, whoa, what on earth is Jesus doing here? After all, he keeps telling us about loving the poor and caring for the poor. And here's this person who's not following any of these rules. And Jesus is engaging with him. Listen to the words that Jesus says to him. They're fascinating to me. First thing that Jesus says to Zacchaeus is, come down, right? Again, the distance is shrinking. It's fascinating, isn't it? There's a sense in which Jesus comes all the way from Capernaum. He's in Jericho. He comes all the way over to get close enough to have a conversation with Zacchaeus, and that's still not good enough. He says, come down. There's a sense in which Jesus says, I want to know you. I want to know who you are. What makes you tick? (laughs) 
And then he takes it a step further and he says, today I'm going to stay in your house. Now, again, most of us will look at the situation and say, oh my goodness, this is super bold. Who's ever gone up to someone they've never met before and says, hey, I'm going to sleep over tonight, right? This is a good plan. Most of us would say we teach our kids not to do things like that. But the culture was different. This was to be expected when an important guest especially came into a town like that. Uh, people were hoping to be able to host or receive them. This was a high honor that Jesus was bestowing on him. But more than that, to engage with someone in this way, to stay with them and to eat with them in that culture, even more so than in our day, took the relationship to an even greater level. Is that Jesus was now saying Zacchaeus is not just a passerby in a treetop. He's not just an acquaintance who I called down from a tree. He's actually, in those days, you would say, he's actually my friend. He's someone I'm willing to be publicly aligned with and associated with. And if that's not strong enough, you have to listen to some of the urgency of the language, right? He says, I must stay with you. That's a translation of the Greek word dei, or dei, dei. It's the idea of, uh, it's a little clause word that kind of means like, it's absolutely necessary, right? Or it's necessary, or it must happen. So this phrase that like, this has got to happen. It's got to happen this way. And when Jesus calls him to, to get down from the tree, he uses the, the original language where there is the idea of like, hurry up, right? You ever been super late and your kids are taking forever or your wife is taking forever or your husband is taking forever, whoever it is in your house, you know that person, and you're like, hurry up! This is how Z- That's the first thing Jesus says to Zacchaeus is, hurry. Jesus, the point is not that Jesus is like, I've got plans later on. The point is, I want to be with this. This is urgent. This connection that I want to have with you is, is so important to me. In fact, you could say, perhaps the whole reason I stopped in this town to begin with. Fascinating. Because Jesus understands that transforming love is hospitable. But look, for Jesus, hospitality does not mean simply inviting someone into your life. It means finding a way to engage them in their life. Many of us in the Western world, especially in the United States, we think of hospitality much in the sense of hosting, right? Uh, much in the sense of, well, I'll, I'll have you over for dinner, right? And certainly this is hospitality, and certainly uh, it is a way of demonstrating importance to someone else by, by um, putting out a nice spread or cleaning up or things like that. But hospitality in its ancient sense, especially in the Jewish sense, had everything to do with welcoming a stranger. And so it was a posture, not an event. It was a way of living, not a date on a calendar. Does this make sense? And so Jesus just lives this way naturally. He just finds his way into people's lives. But, as we read in the story, as we read elsewhere... Uh, the religious people aren't very pleased with this, right? They're like, whoa, you're going to go hang out with this guy? And Jesus is like, yeah, I have to. In fact, that's the very thing they had said when Jesus hung out with the tax collectors 
But I'll be back in Luke chapter 5 with Matthew. This is what he said uh, in that passage. He said, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, the Pharisees understood, or at least they believed, that what they needed to do was build towers. Right? And their tower was all about religion. External religion. And if we do that and stay in that and keep away from the bad people, then maybe, then maybe the God will send His Messiah and we'll be better. Little did they know, the Messiah was walking right amongst them, being a temple, not building a tower. Right? Being with the people. And they're saying, why, I don't understand. Why is, why is He doing this? How is He living this way? Listen, many people are afraid to engage with people around them for any number of reasons. Chief amongst them, am I condoning their life choices if I have a relationship with them? No, you're not. You're being a temple. Am I going to become like them? If you don't really believe the gospel, you might. But if your identity and truth is settled, a settled matter for you, then it doesn't matter. You're not going to change because of being with them. All of this separatistic, sacred, secular divide stuff, it's all a creation of religious people, and unfortunately the church, who hasn't understood the call of Jesus on our particular lives to take the glory of God where people are, instead of twiddling our thumbs, waiting and hoping they stumble upon us in some enclave somewhere else. Listen, if Jesus was worried about guilt by association, he never would have left heaven. He certainly would have, wouldn't have associated with you and me. No. The incarnation, which is at the forefront of the gospel, demands that we live this way and not shelter ourselves. We cannot build towers out of fear or out of religious elitism. If we do, we will not be Jesus' people. We'll simply be religious people. People who actually miss Jesus when He walks right in front of us. That's not who we are, friends. We've got to be people who understand that love at its core is hospitable. That it's a posture, not an event. And that when we engage in it, it's probably going to be scandalous to the elitists in our world. The religious elite are going to look at you and say, well, you went to a bar? What's that all about? You hung out with that guy? What's that all about? Aren't you afraid? But not just the religious elite, the politically elite, right? Wait a minute. You discussed values and ideas with that person? You, pers you pursued a compromise over here? You, right? it's, to anyone who is an elitist in any way, fashion, or form, socioeconomically, ethnically, uh, nationalists, all of these different elitisms, all of which are bad, by the way, are always going to see engagement with people who are different than you as scandalous, dangerous, and disruptive. And you should always only have one answer to them. When they say, why would you do that? You say, because I'm a Christian. 
this is what we do. The people from the outside should be able to point out Christians because they're actually spending time with people who are radically different than them. Not trying to indoctrinate them, not trying to give them guilt trips, but trying to understand and value them and engage with them and demonstrate the resurrection power of Jesus in their midst because they're proximate and they're hospitable. What happens when proximate hospitality arrives? You see that love is by its very nature relational. Look at how Zacchaeus responds to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, I've got to hang out of your house. And he doesn't say, well, I've got to go home and clean the toilets first, right? He says, immediately, let's go. He says, he received him immediately. Zacchaeus' heart and mind were wide open to anything Jesus had to say at that moment. Why? Because of how Jesus had received him and pursued him. Do you understand this? Listen, everyone is not going to be Zacchaeus. Something was happening in Zacchaeus' heart. We get that. But if Jesus had received Zacchaeus in a very different way, this story never happens. You understand this, right? If Jesus just marches by and says, yep, I'm who they say I am, we don't have this story. If Jesus just stops by to get close and say, hey, here's the things you need to believe, we don't have this story. But instead, Jesus understands that the gospel at its core is not a factual proposition. It's a relational engagement. Jesus is our rightful king. That is the gospel. But because he's our rightful king, he stops the royal procession to hang out with Zacchaeus. Because the gospel is relational. Here's the deal. Even if Zacchaeus had responded in a very different way, Jesus would have engaged the same way. We can look at countless examples of ways Jesus engaged people, some of whom remained on the fence, some of whom resisted, and some of whom received. But without the relationship, the transformation is impossible. And so I remind us, I remind myself, as I did often this week preparing, that I'm called to cultivate intentional relationships. Not to try to change people. Not to try to indoctrinate people. but Because when I live Jesus' way in proximate hospitality that builds relationships, it makes possible the transformation of their heart by God. That's his job. That's his burden. That's not ours. But we've got to cultivate the relationships. And the last thing, that love is missional, right? And you might say, well, yeah, proximate missional, that makes sense. We're on the move, we're going. But no, no, no. I mean, when love is received, it moves people right into the mission themselves. Look how Zacchaeus receives this, right? You know, he... He doesn't just have a personal experience. He says, okay, now I'm going to go do this too. But for Zacchaeus, Jesus wasn't just a savior, though he was. He was his Lord. He was his king, and therefore I'm going to live this way. Listen, half my possessions to the poor. And anyone 
I've stolen from, who, oh, by the way, the list probably was super long. I'm going to pay them back four times as much. These are acts of love. Do you see this? That when love is experienced and transforms, it results in love. How does society change? That's what we want, right? It changes when love is offered, received, and reciprocated. And it happens here. Zacchaeus jumps into the mission. And Jesus, when he stops to answer the question of the religious elite, why are you doing this? Offers them a basic answer. The same answer he offered way back when in Luke chapter 5. Listen, I came to seek and save that which is lost. You guys, you seem to think you have it all together. Go ahead. I'm after the people who are looking for answers. Who are looking for help. Who are looking for rescue. Jesus didn't have strategic plans. He didn't have five-year plans. He was motivated by this truth. To seek and save that which was lost. Because when he pursued individuals in rescuing restorative love, he was also transforming the world. Do you see this? Person by person. His transformation of Zacchaeus had radical impact on tons of people. Think about Zacchaeus with me for just a minute. Think about all the poor people who were helped in that moment, right? Think about all the people who experienced radical, a radical act of contrition and forgiveness because they were repaid four times as much as was stolen from them. I mean, we're now at a huge list already, right? Think about all the tax collectors who are under Zacchaeus in the pyramid scheme who are now going to have to live a different way because Zacchaeus is in charge of them. You see this? And think about the whole town of Jericho who's watching this thing happen. See, we look and say, oh my gosh, how am I going to change the world? And Jesus says, just have dinner with a tax collector every once in a while. It's not too hard. God changes hearts. That's not your burden to carry. But if you're not making time for proximate hospitality, then you haven't understood the way of Jesus. Because here's what we believe. We believe the gospel actually is that powerful to change and transform people. We believe the gospel actually is that powerful that we don't have to convince people of it. We can just live it and share it and allow it to do its work. We believe the gospel really is that powerful that it can change our whole world. Not just hearts, but how we live and engage with each other. But we don't spend an awful lot of time cultivating relationships where the gospel can actually take root. Jesus says the gospel is like a seed planted in a heart. Not a political process. Not a national election. Not a church service. Individual hearts. You remember the parable. Jesus says, listen, 
Some seeds fall on soil that's rocky. Some seeds fall on soil that's thorny. Some seeds fall on good soil. And for the longest time, I used to interpret that parable. It says, well, I just hope it falls on good soil. And totally missed the point, I think. But Jesus says, cultivate the soil for crying out loud. If there are rocks, help remove them. If there are thorns, help pull them. You can't make the gospel take root, but you can cultivate the soil. And you do it by being on mission with Jesus. How? Proximate hospitality that creates genuine relationships. Can I pray with you?